0: Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is George Ray, and I am your host. Today I am joined by two water quality experts from Southern California who are both working on pressing drinking water issues in LA County regarding tap water contamination and tap water mistrust. Cindy Donis is a community organizer for East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice, a community-based organization that works to facilitate self-advocates in East Los Angeles, Southeast Los Angeles, and Long Beach. East Yard provides workshops and trainings to prepare community members to engage in decision making that directly impacts their health and quality of life. Gregory Pierce is the co-director of the Luskin Center for Innovation and the director of the Human Right to Water Solutions Lab within the center. He is also the co-director of the UCLA Water Resources Group within the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability and serves as an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Urban Planning. Greg's work focuses on inequities in access to essential environmental services. In this episode, we will be hearing about the background of drinking water contamination in LA County, which has a long history and continues to persist as an issue today. Cindy will share insights on how East Yard centers community voices and expertise in water infrastructure projects and offer advice to other groups looking to increase community voices in their projects. Greg will offer insights about how partnerships with state agencies, academic institutions, and nonprofits evince unique perspectives and avenues of collaboration to increase access to safe and affordable drinking water. We will end this episode with a discussion on how you can get further involved in water and the water workforce. Cindy and Greg, thank you so much for being with me today.
2: Hi, happy to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: So to get us started, could you both provide a little background and history on the situation surrounding drinking water in East Los Angeles, Southeast Los Angeles, and Long Beach? I can start with my personal
2: experiences growing up here on Tongva Territory, so-called L.A. In the city of Maywood in particular, I remember seeing the water coming out yellow and brown, both in the water faucets, in the kitchen, in the bathroom, and in the shower, and needing to flush constantly. And it was something that was very much normalized. Myself, my neighbors experienced it when we brought it up to the landlords. It was something that they didn't have much information or didn't do much about. And in terms of our drinking water, what we drank, uh, we purchased large refillable gallons and supplied it with water from local water días. And that's what many of our neighbors do and continue to do to this day. And even though we still use the water, right, in our showers for brushing our teeth, for cooking, uh, when it came to the drinking of water, it was this purchased water that we would consume and also water bottles. There's so many community members that purchase water bottles, and that's a lot of money that is expended in water in addition to the water utility bill for drinking water. And we've also seen here because of the browning, because of the concerns and questions community members have, organizing that's happened in Maywood, in Linwood, in Compton, and other neighborhoods. Some that are stark examples of this include in Willowbrook, the Sativa Water District, which in 2018, the State Water Board had to step in and make LA County the temporary administrator because of serious water quality and management violations. We also see the issue with industry. There's a lot of polluting industry that puts at risk our groundwater, and there's a lot of known contamination of the ocean near industry in Long Beach. And generally, there's just a lot of mistrust because of these issues that we've seen over and over again. That's rightfully so, the mistrust. Uh, We experience environmental disasters as well that harm our health. And with outright consent from government agencies, we see it in our soil, we see it in our air pollution and monitoring. And so when it came to water, we asked ourselves, how different can our management and care be for water, when the main goal in terms of the water management has been to generate profit and not really provide good quality water to communities?
0: Yeah, well, I think Cindy covered it really well. And certainly I can't add to the lived experience she shared. I will add just a little bit to give context that when we're talking about east los angeles southeast los angeles and to an extent long beach one thing to keep in mind is that you have a lot of different water systems serving those areas it's not one system and drinking water in general is much more fragmented in terms of utilities or water systems than you see in energy or wastewater so you have I don't know the exact number, but somewhere between 40 and 60 individual systems, many of them quite small, some are public, some are private, some are quasi-public, and and they frankly have very different interests and capabilities to provide safe water in the first place. And then as Cindy said, there's a lot of different issues in terms of water quality and affordability in the region. A lot of the issues that are being faced, particularly in East and Southeast Los Angeles are around sort of chemical and and emerging contaminants. And a lot of them have been under the the regulatory radar for quite some time. Some of them are now being regulated and there are sort of primary health-based standards, at least on the books, not being fully enforced. But in other cases, a lot of the issues are still classified legally as, quote unquote, secondary, but really affect what's coming out of people's taps. And people don't trust the water because, as Cindy mentioned, it's discolored, tastes bad, smells bad. And a lot of the the issues there are actually coming from the plumbing inside buildings, where landlords are technically responsible, not water systems. So uh, uh, long story short, a lot of the issues people are facing and the reasons they don't trust the water aren't being addressed by the system, even with some progress on emerging contaminants.
1: I'm glad you got into the trust issues a little bit there. I know we'll touch on that more as the episode continues here. But first, Cindy, I wanted to turn back to you to talk about some of the most pressing water issues that the community itself faces right now and how you and East Yard continue to ensure that community voices are included when addressing these issues.
2: Yeah, so for East Yard, we had a lot of community members who wanted to know more information about water. And generally, like Greg mentioned, right, there's so many different water providers in Southeast LA alone. And folks didn't know who their water provider was at times, if there was an issue with water, who to report this to, or even information about where our water comes from. And so we started with sharing this information, learning about it and identifying what what are the problems and how is it impacting us and what can we do about it? Community members have been active in terms of air pollution and contamination and soil contamination with various campaigns, and we realized that the polluters were not only contaminating our soil and air, but also potentially putting at risk our groundwater and nearby waterways. And so we researched, we connected the dots, and all that understanding has led us to the creation of our, our own water committee made up of members from the different communities that we've been talking about we started that committee in 2022, officially, and we learned about where our water comes from. That 60% of the water that we have here in our neighborhoods is actually, some say, imported. We've learned to identify this as stolen from other areas through the California, Colorado, and LA Aqueduct. And this colonial project and management of water continues to harm Indigenous peoples in their respective neighborhoods and communities, as well as the animals and the ecology and land that depend on that water. And so knowing this now, we have such a sharper understanding about the need of advocating for safe, clean water here with a deeper emphasis about it being local. This means advocating for local infrastructure projects that includes us at the seed thought of the project that includes and respects local native tribes and that can eliminate the need for the aqueducts and address our concerns with water quality as well.
1: If I can follow up on what you just said, it sounds like you've been pretty successful in doing this type of advocacy work, but I know there's a steep learning curve there. So what kind of challenges have you had to overcome to establish these programs and campaigns and what advice can you offer to other environmental advocacy groups trying to do this same work?
2: The first challenge was making sense of all the information. There are so many different water agencies and water providers and different hierarchies. In that initial learning, I we reached out to Greg also and tried to see if we can create a power map. And I believe, Greg, you showed us this like map of just a spider web that was very convoluted. And I remember thinking, how am I going to make sense of this for myself? And how am I going to make sense of this with my community? And it's just been bit by bit because it can be really overwhelming. A big part of it is partnering up, partnering up with various organizations and various groups of folks that are, are invested in this. Another challenge was then realizing that we needed to to ask and sometimes demand to be included in the the thought process and planning of projects, that it was not an assumption from public agencies that community members are interested in this, as well as being in allyship and being accomplices with our Native relatives who also have an even more challenging time in being incorporated and being thought of and considered into these projects, even though they are the first caretakers of this land and water. And that that was deeply disturbing. And so I think we really encourage organizations to identify the issues, to understand what the impact on Native peoples is in their respective lands, and to, to really collaborate. This is a really big collaborative effort in terms of mainstream environmental groups, We really also advocate to engage meaningfully with Native nations on whose lands they're on and with uh, grassroots groups as well of communities of color. We've been able to partner with other organizations who do have more funding than East Yard, who do have more visibility than
1: East Yard, who have been able to support us and uplift us as well. Your mentions of all these different collaborations. I'd love to turn to Greg now and ask you about your work with the UCLA Human Right to Water Solutions Lab. So what kind of insights do you gain from each of your partnerships with state agencies, academic institutions, and nonprofits? And how do these partnerships work to provide overall mission support for your mission of safe and affordable drinking water across the nation?
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, partnership is really part of the model of what the the Luskin Center, which the lab is housed in at UCLA, really values. And are, of course, we're, you know, at a university, we do research, but we're really responding to and and try to focus our research to support community and, and policy concerns. And in the human right to water space with the lab, that's we're sort of doubling down on that model. And I'd say there's really different types of partnerships that are needed depending on the particular problem. But when it comes to tap trust in particular. You have to start and really be led by humanity specific concerns and Native people's concerns to identify where to work on issues and, and what the issues are. But then because of some of the policy and responsibility uncertainty in the space, you also inevitably kind of have to work in some ways with utilities, with other local government agencies, really non-profit organizations, sometimes with landlords. So the partnerships look a little bit different. I will say, you know, I started this work, became aware of how big of an issue tap distrust was through just sort of randomly being connected to a partnership between a local nonprofit Physicians for social responsibility in Los Angeles that was working with the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, and in turn with trying to work with the counties housing, public housing authority. And that's that sort of on the ground, rich experience and process of cooperation, but also many times conflict over what the issues were in an area of of Watts and unincorporated LA around tap trust and the water coming out of folks taps was, was how we started this work. And sort of the mode in which we try to continue is again, being responsive to observe needs and trying to inform both funding decisions and policy support in the space, which is still, frankly, you know, very underdeveloped from a support standpoint to address community concerns.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you started talking a little bit about the work you've been doing in that space. And I now want to ask a question of both of you. So news articles from as early as 2012 have reported high levels of manganese, a contaminant That in high concentrations can disrupt the nervous system and causes water to smell bad in the tap water of Maywood in L.A. County. In 2018, two schools in the L.A. school district found that water from their school's fixtures exceeded the state and federal limit for lead in drinking water. So now moving to you know what you both have been doing. In 2019, East Yard released a comprehensive community-based assessment of drinking water quality in southeast Los Angeles County, which details how water pollution continues to be a widespread issue in communities of color in Southeast LA. And, you know, for the part of the UCLA Luskin Center, your newest water initiative focuses on researching how to increase trust in tap water in LA County. So I pose all of this to you to kind of give our listeners a a sense of how things have developed in LA recently, the different cross-cutting water issues, and also ask both of you how these different issues overlap and how your organizational work overlaps as well.
0: Yeah, well, I'd say when it comes to tap distrust, we, we keep working on this issue in 2023. Again, we started back in around 2016. And the three main takeaways I would, I would say from our work are, are, first of all, that distrust matters no matter what the causes of it are, tap water distrust. There are consequences for affordability, affordability and health regardless. The second is that in each case, unfortunately, <laughs> there's no easy answer and you have to investigate between six and eight, probably more different reasons or combinations of reasons that people may not trust their tap water and that can be of course based on current experience and, and again a lot of the experience out of the tap that isn't reflected in regulatory official drinking water quality results it can also be based on past experience or experience of relatives or friends and I will say you know having one bad or, or several bad experiences can turn people off from the tap for, for life in, in some cases. It could also, you know, be a matter of, in some cases, you know, tap distrust is not only common in communities that are historically disinvested in. It's, there's also levels of distrust all over the place, and some folks just different risk perception levels, and and won't trust the tap water regardless. Among a number of different things, they won't trust. And then there is some role, certainly, for uh, combating false narratives around tap water that are are promoted by bottled water and sugary beverage companies. And I think the final lesson that I do really want to stress that we've learned throughout our work is that you can't just provide information about tap water. Certainly, you can't just provide information in the way that utilities are used to doing. That information is both too complicated, too bland, too boring. And it really doesn't combat some of the false narratives that are out there about tap water in some cases. And I think we've also found that the way that information is communicated is probably just as important as the actual technical nature of the information. And if information, accurate information is communicated disrespectfully by communities or public agencies to community members, that's not gonna do any good. And there has to be open lines of communication and long lines of communication and actual conversation, not just sort of an, an information deficit model that agencies and nonprofits have employed from the pure environmental space for some time.
2: I agree with everything that you've shared, Greg. That is a reflection of the conversations that I've had with community members. And in terms of uh, the research that we were able to do in 2019, it confirmed the overburden that community members have, both in the pollution, but then in the role that community members have in understanding this information. And it's because of what you share. When information is communicated to community members, it's done in a letter, right? Thinking of the reports that water providers are mandated to provide, and it's information that members can't read or can't digest or fully understand. There's no continuation or conversation on that information. Additionally, some of the pollutants that we saw on these limited water samples that we were able to collect in 2019 did show high levels of lead, which is really concerning, particularly for our community members in the east side and in southeast LA, because we were already exposed to lead through air contamination from the company Exide a battery recycling facility that we were able to shut down. But however, our ongoing cleanup process, because there's so much lead and arsenic in the soil. And this all layered into the need of stronger regulations for drinking water safety levels that can actually match public health goals. We learned that very clearly that our regulations don't necessarily match public health goals. And for communities that are overburdened, that's a huge risk and a scary thing that we're exposed to these pollutants potentially in multiple ways. But I think the largest takeaway for us in terms of our research that we were able to conduct is the importance of community science. When community members are part of the process and conducting the research themselves, learning how to read and decipher the data and understanding, it's really powerful and it can be the bridge-builder for trust amongst different participants from like community members, agencies, and public water providers. However, funding was limited for that project, and East Yard and other organizations are currently brainstorming a county-wide tap water testing program. And the hope is to expand on this research that we were able to do and other organizations have also been able to do at a small scale to also narrow down and pinpoint where the issues are at. Because we also have seen that if it's a landlord and it's the property owner, there's a point of fingers to then the water provider to then a point of fingers of the regulations and this constant lack of accountability. And hopefully with a county-wide tap water testing program that can narrow down and is holistic enough, it can narrow down and identify key solutions.
1: So from both your answers, it seems like there's almost two issues at play here. There is the tap water that is actually contaminated and the work being done to catalog those issues and and clean up that water. And then there's these issues that Greg, you've been working on of tap water mistrust originating from aesthetic but not harmful plumbing issues. So Greg, could you explain a little bit of this difference and maybe the gap in perception on tap water?
0: Sure. And I'd start with that there's actually well there there's there's no way to define what's safe versus unsafe, healthy versus unhealthy, that's crystal clear, and certainly that everyone will agree on. There's just not a way. There are regulatory standards, legal standards that the EPA and then on down to your individual water system has to comply with that are, quote unquote, health-based and and primary. And there is a, a, a strong contrast still between what the primary health-based standards that systems have to meet versus the experiences that folks have at the top that cause them to distrust. There's a a difference in what's driving those two things in many cases, but not all. Again, as I said before, you have to investigate every case and really start with the assumption that the problem may be the primary health-based standards. And in some ways we're seeing some of the quote-unquote aesthetic issues that cause distrust move into the primary standard Category, including some recent regulatory changes with manganese. But all that to say, yes, still, there are a lot of cases right now where technically the water coming out of folks' taps is not violating the primary health based standards, but it is causing distrust because of uh, discoloration issues and taste and smell. And uh, one of the reasons, of, probably the primary reason for that, is that the premise plumbing or the plumbing the pipes in your building on any public or private property are the responsibility of whoever manages that property you know in, in residential settings particularly in low-income residential settings we're really talking about you know rental buildings and landlords who are responsible for maintaining that infrastructure and if they don't do anything to update their plumbing or to address plumbing issues when they come up that can easily and most easily lead to particularly discoloration and people rationally not trusting that water, but also that situation not being something that a water system or the EPA is responsible for. In theory, landlords are responsible for addressing that issue quickly, but it doesn't tend to rise high on their list and doesn't is technically covered under habitability codes for tenants and renters, but oftentimes, They don't want to raise those issues, particularly in, you know, high cost areas of California where there may be reprisal or even, you know, eviction concerns if they're raising concerns of that nature. So it remains kind of a a gray space and a fact that a lot of the distrust that is being driven by experiences people are having at the tab technically isn't covered under our regulatory and policy standards. And we're working on that issue and various government agencies are are considering the issue. And I know community advocates are certainly driving toward funding and policy reform in that space. But I would say all of those efforts, except when it comes to lead, are are fairly recent. And we've seen some progress, but there's a long, long way to go to, again, ensure that people have a safe and sort of a trusting relationship with what's coming out of their tap.
1: That sounds like a really good transition to me to talk about some of those regulatory changes that might need to be made. So from both of your perspectives, what policies and changes do you want to see happen at the local, state, or even federal level?
2: Thank you. I think to continue this conversation around the issue with landlords, we see that in many of our communities, we don't have uh, tenant protections. So in naming these issues uh, in the household or apartment complex, there's a risk of evictions, there's a risk of rent increases. Uh, And so it is really important in talking about water to also talk about tenant protections, which means rent control, which means regulation and enforcement of code violations, which is it touches on the issue and includes the issue around habitability and clean water in the in the home. So those are just a few of the tenant protections that are necessary. And here in in the county of L. A., some of the protections that exist are emergency protections that expire at the end of March 2023. And it's so critical and important for the smaller cities that are considered incorporated to pass local protections for their tenants to secure that. Continuing to to provide funding for water infrastructure projects for the county to ensure that we close the gap in need for the aqueducts and the, the, again, importation or stealing of water. And in that, to increase collaborative efforts that include community members in the writing of these policies in the infrastructure project creations. Locally, when it comes to the management of water by different water agencies, there needs to be policies that can incorporate and include collaboration and that also have a framework of land and water back policies and practices for Indigenous peoples. In thinking about the state, we would really benefit from having more regulation on monopoly companies like Nestle or Fiji that continue to profit from water sealing. They sell water to our communities, profit from this, however, are way less regulated than our water providers. Having some type of regulations on these companies would be extremely critical and important. And in connections to other harms that are happening, these these kinds of companies also sustain the oil and gas industry through their plastic consumption. And it's so important to, to see the holistic aspects of all of these issues and generally we just need a shift in strong protections for water and also for communities of color as opposed to industry and profit which we see so many of these industries who we know here in our neighborhoods as polluters who benefit at the expense of of communities and at the expense of water quality for communities of color
0: i'd love to see you know, funding and support for this at the federal level. This is a national issue. Folks don't trust their tap water in, in places all over the US. And that's increased since the Flint scandal and sort of cover up and revealing of what went on there. But I don't really see a path for federal funding for tap distrust, except when there's primary contamination, except when there's lead, which there was recent large federal funding for through the bipartisan infrastructure law. So I think the action is really at the state and the local level. And in California, again, I'd say, I'd love to see state action because this is not just a Southeast, East and Long Beach area in Los Angeles. It's not just a Los Angeles issue. It's definitely, An issue, particularly in the Bay Area and San Joaquin Valley, where we've done some work. So I'd love to see the state pass some laws both to require additional information to be shared around water quality complaints that applies to water systems, as well as a state funding program to incentivize landlords to upgrade their premise plumbing voluntarily, in addition to enforcing, again, legal and habitability codes wherever possible, which should be possible everywhere. And, and as Cindy noted, we're seeing sort of the rollback of some of the existing protections over the next few months uh, in 2023 from COVID. So we need to see enhanced support and protections broadly for housing affordability. But then at the local level and the county level, I do think in Los Angeles, we are seeing some potential progress and we'll see more progress from the potential countywide testing effort that Cindy mentioned particularly around uh, funding for infrastructure upgrades, again, premise plumbing upgrades and incentive program for landlords, as well as real enforcement at the county and city levels of housing codes. That's more possible in, in practice than at the state level. I think the final issue where I'm actually torn is around the provision of filters to households who don't trust their tap, when in cases where funding can't be provided for infrastructure upgrades, but simply sort of putting a bandaid on the problem, providing filters that may increase trust but don't solve the underlying problem, I think that that's a controversial topic, and I'm I'm curious what what Cindy would would think on that.
2: Yeah, I, we've talked about it with the water committee, and folks are interested in that as a band-aid temporary solution while long-term solutions are being crafted and planned out because we see the issue present on our day-to-day lives like I'm thinking water filters at the faucet level in particular would be beneficial for it as a temporary but not the solution that's that's what community members have shared
1: and I want to move to a question about kind of how your two organizations overlap. I know you have worked in maybe not together, but in parallel in the past, maybe together. And what sort of insights have you gained from one another, whether in that past work or even in this podcast episode? Academic institutions can play a huge role in supporting
2: grassroots organizations like East Yard and the research at the Luskin Center and resources at the Luskin Center have really helped East Yard build our our understanding, our framework, and with data and research. We don't always have all the time to, to do the research ourselves, or we don't have a paid team member that is focused solely on research and being able to collaborate with the Luskin Center and, and read through the reports and data that they're able to, to come out with is, is super helpful. The
0: best way to learn about where we should be working is from community-based organizations like East Jersey, and we have learned from them on, on several occasions, you know, where the concerns are and, and what the focus should be because we... This isn't information you can get anywhere, but directly from lived experience. And otherwise, I mean, I think there's a number of ways in which we learn from East Yards. And I would say, including some of their past tap water testing and advocacy efforts over the last seven to 10 years, and I even learned some things today that I didn't know on the podcast, including around the committee that was formed in 2022. And I have heard a little bit about the potential county-wide tap testing effort, but excited to you know, support and, and potentially partner on advancing that effort. Our work at the Luskin Center, we try to respond to and support efforts around environmental justice and environmental climate policy more broadly that are coming from communities and policymakers. So East Jersey is a big part of who we want to hear from all the time in Los Angeles and particularly around this tap trust issue.
1: Well, I'm very glad we could bring both of you together here today. And and my final question is a little bit different in kind than the rest of the episode. So I wanted to bring up something we've been thinking a lot about here at ELI. So we manage the Local Government Environmental Assistance Network, which is an online resource aiming to help local governments understand and comply with federal requirements. As part of that program, we also produce a podcast separate from this one. So go check it out if you're interested. And we recently did an episode on Building and Retaining the Water Workforce. A third of the water workforce is retiring in the next 10 years, so now is a critical time to attract young, diverse, and skilled people. As experts who have been involved in water work for years, what drew you both initially to this work, and why should our listeners be interested?
0: Yeah, I was drawn into water work quite some time ago now, uh, (laughs) based first on understanding water access issues somewhat randomly being turned on to, to water access issues globally and then the more i looked into it and the more i started to pay attention realizing more and more you know how global these issues were and even experienced in different parts of los angeles and just became more and more interested in supporting efforts for you know safe reliable affordable water I would say to people who may be considering their careers, first of all, you know, start with what I don't mean to give a cliche, but water is life. Water is essential. And it's super important work and and work that in some ways we're fighting an uphill battle on because of climate change in particular. So we just need people for the importance of the work it's also i would say really interesting and fascinating it can be also be a frustrating space but there's so much history and a lot of it's bad history around colonialism and disinvestment that Cindy's mentioned throughout the podcast but it's a fascinating space to work in and it relates to a lot of broader social issues for sure it's not just a technical issue then more i suppose practically water jobs are pretty stable jobs. We're always, again, going to need water. There are a lot of folks retiring from the water sector. So if you're looking for something stable, in terms of employment, I think it's a good way to look. And so if you're looking for something, again, that's very important, interesting, and can help pay the bills, I'd encourage you to consider a career in local water.
2: For myself, uh, I water is something I need, right We all need to live and bodies of water in particular like the Ellie River help me in my reflections and my mental health uh, and my relationship building with friends and family. The Ellie River holds a very special place in my life and it was after realizing my personal appreciation and gratitude for water, that I started thinking more critically about my experiences in terms of access to clean water and even the LA River, thinking of why does it look the way it looks in my neighborhood? Why is it extremely concretized? How did it get there? And and asking these critical questions for myself and for my community and thinking larger uh, uh, than myself. And that brought me to other community members who also had these questions who were also curious And I've stayed engaged because there's so many historical harms that now that I know them, I feel a heavy responsibility to address and advocate on some of those parts that Greg mentioned, right, that aren't the the best parts or the most frustrating parts. But in building community around water in relation to water and connected to water, it's also some of the most joyful experiences that I've had. This is a big shout out to the Water Committee and also to Paola, who organizes Around Water with me, the East Yard team. And there's just something really powerful in how water is able to bring us together and connect me with people even like for this podcast right and so I think if it's water that brings you joy that brings you to reflections and questions then it's definitely something to look into as something to to find a career within but I I recommend anything that you're passionate about to fully look into it and and identify the questions and go on the journey of finding the answers and that can develop as a career for you.
1: Well, thank you both for joining me today, and all of your insights were so helpful to better understand this space, and hopefully we've inspired some people to learn more about water or even consider a career in water, so thank you again.
0: Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.